Tokyo is one of the most eco-friendly cities in the world and celebrates its link to nature. But this has not always been the case. In the 70s, it was one of the most polluted cities in the world. I'm Aurore. I'm Katina. I'm Ali. I'm Leilani. And this is the Japan on the Record Special Student Podcast. As we know, the post-war economic miracle in turned Japan into a land of development, factories and pavement, and concrete rivers. A survey found that only 7% of Japan's sandy beaches are natural, and the others have some artificial structures such as tetrapods, bank protection, and have been altered in some way. Environmental pollution has been accompanied with industrialization since the Meiji period, and in the 60s, diseases caused by factory-emitted waters and air pollution were found in areas throughout Japan. These forms of pollution occurred as a result of the priority placed on rapid economic growth and the downplay of standards to protect people's health and safety. There's different types of pollutions. Dioxin pollutions, it means that limited land area in Japan, securing space to dispose of trash is an issue. So Japan has resorted to burning trash as a matter of necessity. And in the 90s, pollution from dioxin released by trash incinerators became a major issue in society. This vehicle emission, as you all know, Japan is a major city for air pollution from the nitrogen, oxides, and particulate matter emitted by uh, vehicles. Then there's high-tech pollution in Japan. Japan is known as one of the biggest high-tech producing country in the world. And the cutting-edge industries, uh, such as integrated circuit production, pollutes water by solvents. And then there's also a lot of pollution caused by natural disasters. And one issue surrounds the Tsukiji fish market. And to tell us more about that, we have Katina. Thank you. Uh, so the Tsukiji fish market is a large wholesale seafood market. It's a, also a very popular place for tourists due to like the fresh uh, seafood and sushi that restaurants source directly from the market. The Tsukiji fish market is also really well known for their tuna auctions that a lot of tourists come to watch. The most expensive bid for a tuna was actually this year, and it was for $3 million for one tuna. However, uh, after being ro- located in Tsukiji, Tokyo for 83 years, the Tsukiji fish market was relocated very recently to Toyosu Market to make way for the 2020 Olympic infrastructure. Although the Tsukiji fish market is a very popular tourist destination, a lot of people don't know that the Tsukiji fish market throughout the years have become very polluted with toxins and they don't have correct air conditionings that help maintain low temperatures for the fish, uh, which causes the frozen tunas um, to thaw. Which is why the uh, Tokyo Metropolitan Government decided to relocate the Tsukiji fish market in in October of 2018 to the new Toyosu. But even... The new location in the Toyosu market it was also polluted because the new site was previously a gas plant. So there was a lot of controversy with the relocation of the Tsukiji fish market um, to the newer and bigger Toyosu facility uh, due to pollution and contamination concerns. The Tsukiji fish market's uh, move was justified uh, by the governor of Tokyo, Yuriko Koike, for sanitation and efficiency reasons. Sanitation being that the Tsukiji fish market didn't have any air conditioning uh, and it couldn't maintain low temperatures during Japan's hot and humid summers, uh, which caused the frozen tuna and seafood to start thawing and, you know, potentially cause... um, 
food poisoning for guests and tourists. And for efficiency, um, the Tsukiji market was not big enough to fit all the vendors and their fish. So a lot of vendors were leaving their fish outside near areas uh, with a large amount of traffic and cars coming through. The new area where the Tsukiji fish market would be re relocated um, used to be a gas plant, as I said before, which is concerning because you know gas plants leave a lot of pollutants and dangerous chemicals even after they are removed and inspected. So during the building of the Toyosu market, they discovered that there was a lot of groundwater accumulating in the basement of the building. You know, groundwater from previous gas plants are known to be contaminated with uh, fracking fluids, methane, and other dangerous organic compounds. So once this water was tested uh, for pollution, they actually discovered that there were three compounds, um, benzene and arsenic, which are um, safe and allowed up to a certain level. But cyanogen, which Japan's environmental regulations have a zero tolerance for, was also found in the water. Um, arsenic is a poison and a carcinogen, which um, is a substance that causes cancer. And cyanogen, finally, um, causes irritation to the eyes, respiratory system failures, it causes headaches, vomiting, convulsions, and you know even death. This sounds terrible. And the 2020 Olympics are coming soon. Is the Japanese government planning on doing anything to solve that? The answer is yes. Um, so uh, to solve this problem, the government uh, suggested bioremediation, which is just injecting uh, organisms into the polluted groundwater to eat the pollutants. Um, although the government has ensured that the groundwater issue has been resolved and has opened the market, scientists uh, say that groundwater pollutants can reach the surface through gaseous forms, which increases the risk to workers and guests. And although rare, it could also contaminate the fish and seafood. Another problem is that there, were, there was also a lot of controversy um, of the government officials uh, falsifying the pollution results in order to open this, the Toyosu market, which led to a lot of public distrust and a lot of um, consumer confidence dropping. But again, the Tokyo governor stood by her word and ensured its safety. But during the opening of the Toyosu fish market, there was actually some health concerns that haven't been resolved. The first one being the facility temperature control, which was also a problem that the Tsukiji fish market had, as there were signs of um, fish thawing during the first ever auction in the Toyosu market. Finally, uh, the chemical residue in the basement where groundwater was accumulating before the market was open was also found. But however, you know, overall, the market is still open and there hasn't been any huge health concerns uh, or risks reported yet. Thank you, Katina, for this information. And it's quite reassuring to know that the government is doing um, their job and trying to fix those um, health concerns and that there's haven't been uh, complaints yet. And I hope there's not going to be any soon. Um, unfortunately, in the 19s, there's been a lot of complaints regarding health issues, especially in the Suginami sickness, which is um, especially in the condition that is known as the Suginami sickness. And we have Hali today to talk, uh, to tell us more about that. So Suginami is a ward on the western edge of uh, inner Tokyo. In the March of 1996, they opened a waste transfer station there. And already a month later, some people began complaining of bizarre symptoms. So there was the famous case of Keiko Saito, who was profiled in Time magazine. She was an otherwise healthy 63-year-old woman who began slurring her words, becoming lightheaded, having painful swellings in her chest, and growing facial hair. So in order to understand what would make an otherwise healthy woman suddenly present with these bizarre symptoms, we have to understand what it is that a waste transfer station does. So what the plants that they opened at Suginami did was it compressed garbage at a scale of 10 to 1. And this helped reduce the amount of diesel trucks on Tokyo roads that were carrying garbage, 
which was a key promise of the Tokyo mayor. But garbage compression also has a deadly byproduct, which is toxins. So independent observers saw that 90 plus toxic substances were introduced to Suginami in the aftermath of the plant opening. And these included dioxin and hydrogen sulfide, which are some of the deadliest and potentially lethal substances that can be in, uh, in the air. But the Tokyo governor minimized the issue because, as we mentioned earlier, it helped them reduce the number of garbage trucks on the road. So therefore, they could say that they're reducing auto pollution. And also, the unaffected unaffected residents of the area were not sympathetic to the affected residents because their ward actually received generous subsidies from the city to operate the waste transfer station in their ward. So the people who were afflicted were actually shunned, not supported for years. But in 2000, the the government finally caved in and they did an investigation where they concluded that the problem was only because of these underground tanks that were carrying water. And they said that these tanks were cross-contaminating with the sewage networks of the residents affected. And they basically limited the scope of the elements from March to July of 1996. So only the first four months of the plant's operation. But... In 2009, they finally shut down the plant. And while they didn't directly acknowledge the um, role of the Suginami sickness in their decision, they said that the plant might be starting to produce dioxins, to which independent observers said, duh. I'm really sorry to hear about the precise and awful case of Keiko, but I was wondering, do you have any uh, numbers of um, of regarding how many people or percentage of people that were affected, uh, that might be affected by this Suganami sickness? Yeah, so uh, usually people say that 10% of the area was affected. Some uh, estimates I read was 500 to 600 people, but it's hard to get a precise number because there's actually a park above the waste transfer station. It's called uh, Igusamori Park. And so the exhaust goes through there and people who might not even live in Suginami might be spending their day there and they come across this contamination, but then you don't attribute it to Suginami sickness because they don't live in the area. And so what happened next after, did they, what happened to the, the ward? Did they shut it down? Is it still um, inactive? So they did shut down the plant in 2009 they did not acknowledge uh, the Suginami sickness to the extent that independent observers do. They did acknowledge people who were affected in the first four months because of the underground tanks contaminating with the sewage, and they received very minimal medical expenses coverage, like payback from the government. So what is exactly the Suginami sickness according to the government or according maybe to other like more um, scientists? Uh, so if you ask the Japanese government, Suginami sickness is just hydrogen sulfide poisoning, a mild case of hydrogen sulfide poisoning. But if you ask independent exer- uh, observers and experts, they would tell you that it's a myriad of different symptoms related to 
different people being exposed to a different cocktail of toxins around them. So as Ali told us, the Suginami sickness was caused by a waste transfer plant. And um, regarding waste, we have today Leilani, I was going to tell us about another kind of weird and really interesting uh, fact around waste, um, which is called um, commonly the war on crows. So Leilani, I'm going to pass you the mic and you can tell us more about that. So what I'm going to talk about is an interesting problem that developed specifically in Tokyo. As we've touched on, Japan is a country famous for its economic recoveries and periods of accelerated growth. But as we've also talked about, that often leads to environmental degradation. This problem specifically of crows in Tokyo uh, has to do with the increased amount of garbage that the city produced, especially through the late 20th century and early 2000s. Um, some people like to label it as Japan also taking up this more Western and wasteful lifestyle. The problem itself is the abundance of large crows, specifically jungle and carrion crows, that actually terrorize the city. And it sounds like science fiction, but the crow problem is actually quite serious in Tokyo, and they've been working on it for a number of years. With the increased amount of garbage put out onto the streets in plastic bags, crows flock to the urban centers of Tokyo. From what we can tell, the change from black opaque plastic bags to, ironically, more eco-friendly bags that were see-through uh, in the 80s allowed crows to see the food remnants in the garbage. And once crows knew it was there, they flocked in huge numbers, and it's become impossible to get them out of the city. So what's exactly with the issue with crows? So it doesn't sound uh, as much of a threat as it really is, but I'll give you some background on crows so we can kind of better understand why this bird is such a, a pest. <laughs> um, so crows are very intelligent. They're actually arguably the most intelligent bird species, perhaps just behind ravens. They pass on knowledge to their young. They're one of the only other species besides apes to use tools. Um, they remember faces for a number of years, as we've actually seen in studies that have been done in the United States. And specifically in Tokyo, the crows are about twice the size of crows that you would see anywhere else, like in North America. So they are a little bit more intimidating, and they also have an abundant food source, which makes them pretty resilient to human efforts to get them out. So specifically, the problems associated with uh, the crow infestation is... They're attacking people, they steal food, they cause blackouts, uh, and really a whole slew of things, which I'll get into more in detail. So Wait, are they really attacking people? They do attack people, especially in nesting season. So that's actually where we are right now. From March to May, crows get very violent in protecting their young. Um, so that's really when the main trouble occurs of them dive bombing people. But even throughout the rest of the year, uh, crows are very fixated on food, which leads them to attack people, steal food. They go into schools. They go into public areas. Uh, as I mentioned, the blackouts are a result of them building their nests because they really love to use the fiber optic cables, so much so that actually electricity companies have had their own, uh, own separate crow patrols, which uh, is part of the war on crows, which I'll get into now. So... The development of this problem happened uh, with the influence of one person who is very notable in Japan and probably needs no introduction, uh, former Governor Shintaro Ishihara. Essentially, uh, the governor was playing golf one day and he got harassed by a crow. Uh, and really, this was a breaking point <laughs> and the crows should not have messed <laughs> with this person. 
Um, the next day, he declared a pretty much all-out war on crows and getting them out of the city in his frustration. So to commence this war on crows, uh, Governor Shintaro Ishihara said himself that he wanted to make Tokyo's official dish crow pie. Um, elements of the war on crows include poison gas being used to kill them, trapping them in plastic bags with meat on the inside. As I said, there's crow patrols of electricity companies which also employ these tactics. And the city's also gotten creative in using things like bees and falcons and other animals that might pose a solution, but we'll get to why that necessarily isn't sustainable. Um, so in terms of poison gas, that was by far the most effective throughout the number of years. It's hard to find exact statistics on how many crows the city killed, but most people estimate that it's somewhere in the upper tens of thousands. However, has this had a dent on the crow population? Not really. They still have an abundant food source. They still breed readily. And essentially, there's no way to sustainably get them out. But killing crows seems a bit extreme. Is there any other way we could, um, Tokyo could get rid of the crows without completely exterminating them? Um, a way of um, maybe changing how people put their garbage out or a way of removing them from Tokyo without hurting them? There definitely are ways that are more progressive, and that's sort of what the city has been turning to in more recent years. Um, specifically, the issue with the garbage itself, which is really the root of the problem, doesn't actually seem to be mentioned as much as you might think in uh, this crow problem. Essentially, Japan's attitudes towards um, the infestation of crows has to do with eliminating the crows themselves, but not essentially changing the ways that they put out their garbage. And something that could be really effective is having uh, bins instead of bags, perhaps, that make it more difficult for the crows to get in. What they have done is made crow nets and bird nets to put over the garbage bags. However, uh, it still remains a problem, and crows are very crafty animals, so it's only a matter of time before they figure them out. But some interesting progressive solutions that have uh, come from the more academic side are to actually communicate with crows in order to relocate them. To elaborate on communicating with crows, uh, one academic, Naoki Sukahara, who is a crow specialist, has actually looked into speaking the crow's language directly over uh, sound speakers and perhaps using that in order to get them into better areas. So what he does is study the voice prints of the crows, and actually he's identified roughly 40 words and phrases that crows say to communicate with each other. It's worth noting that crows actually do have regional dialects, but they're all able to understand each other. So he can use these broad communication signals to actually reach all of the crows. And what he plans to do is say things like, this place here is safe, or this place here is dangerous, in order to sort of manipulate the settling patterns of the crows. Eventually, this could be a sustainable solution if we find a place to permanently relocate them. Again, this won't be sustainable until the crows know that the garbage and food options in Tokyo are no longer an option that's accessible. So it really does have to go hand in hand with better garbage solutions. While this sounds fairly high tech, other people have actually resorted to creative and interesting ways of communicating with the crows, which surprisingly have sort of worked. So how would they do that? Uh, well, one man in particular decided to put signs up around uh, a local institution saying crows do not enter. 
And surprisingly, it swept the nation as people thought that the crows had actually learned to read signs. But what we think has happened is that the crows don't read the language, but they do see people making associations with reading the signs and then looking at them. And crows actually don't like the increased attention. So if they see a lot of people paying attention to them, pointing at them, they were they won't settle there. They're more likely to move somewhere else. So these signs have been somewhat effective. If you search the crow problem in Tokyo, you also might find a viral video of a crow in an underground train station trying to buy a train ticket, as it appears. And I know it sounds crazy, but upon the crow uh, doing all of these buttons on the touchscreen and then being prompted to pay for the ticket, it actually looks at the woman beside it, walks over and pulls her credit card out of the slot and walks back to its own machine, which is ridiculous. And it just shows you really how the mind games these crows are playing with the people of Japan. That's actually quite interesting and somehow quite frightening too. Uh, not only the attacks, but the fact that they're so smart. So we have talked about here today about pollution, about waste, and about the dangers of pollution and waste. And I would like to finish this talk about how to fix those pollution issues. And we know that the relationship between Japanese and the environment is quite paradoxical because, in fact, Japanese people are really excellent recyclers, especially today. But they also use excessive packaging when they buy products. Shoppers are used to buy individually wrapped apples and pears. There's plastic bottles and throwaway wooden chopsticks are favored over recyclable options. Japanese people use about 25 billion pairs of disposable chopsticks every year. And in a recent study of the remote inhabited Anderson Island in the South Pacific, researchers from Britain and Australia have found that Japan and China were actually the leading countries of origin of the 17 tons of plastic waste that was floating there. And more data from 2014 from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the municipal recycling rate for Japan was only 12, 21% below the top-ranked Germany, which is at 48%, Sweden at 33%, and even the U.S. came at 26%. Japan is now one of the most successful countries in the world when it comes to recycling plastic. There's 113 plastic recycling plants in all of Japan. It's said that the overall plastic recycling rate has improved from 46% in 2000 to 83% in 2015. And since 1997, the country has passed several recycling laws that have been uh, quite well implemented on how to address the disposal and the treatment of plastic waste. Recycled materials are used in textile, in industrial materials, and even household items, such as egg boxes, for example. A large quantities are also shipped to China and Hong Kong and other parts of Asia, where it used to make toys and other games. So a bit more about recycling. A typical area in Japan makes at least 12 distinctions between trash types. There's newspaper, cardboard, milk cartons, books, magazine, and other mixed papers. There's also cans, bottles, and PET bottles, and then other kinds of plastic. And whatever doesn't fit in those categories are separated into a burnable or non-burnable. 
everywhere in Tokyo, everyone has pamphlet with a very strict instruction and very detailed instruction on how to recycle. So the schedule for uh, putting waste outside is very strict. It's only in the morning before eight. So no one can put trash in the evening before that. It's really explained thoroughly how to dispose and what can be put where with images, what is compostable and what is not. One example of a plant is the Minato plant. The Minato plant takes cans, glass bottles, and jars. Uh, they also recycle plastic and cardboard. It was opened in 1999, and it used very modern technology to reuse the environmental impact. Recycling companies are just one of the many players in the recycling game, which also includes individuals who illicit gather recyclable from plastic boxes and sell them to wards. Some people can make to about 130 yen per kilogram by selling cans or other uh, plastic bottles. There's another interesting event organized by the Minato plant, which is the Recycle Furniture Exhibition. So any wooden furniture that is still in good condition can be sent to the Minato Resource Recycle Center and recycled furniture exhibition is organized where those wooden furniture is assessed and it's often based on the quality, not on the brand. So people can actually get really good brand of furniture for really cheap. It's a way of giving furniture a second life. Now in Japan and especially in Tokyo, there's a growing trend for products to bear labels showing their environmental friendliness in order to increase eco-conscious consumer because recycling is really good in Japan, but the issue is that people might not realize how uh, buying some um, products rather than other impacts um, the environment. Especially on tea bags featuring a green frog and the words Renfrog Alien certified, meaning that this product is certified by the International Environment Protection Organization and that uses raw ingredients grown on farm that are managed according to rigorous ecological and working with environmental standards. There's the bird-friendly coffee. There's also paper products certified by the Forest Stewardship Council, certifying that the paper products were produced through responsibly managed forests. So Japan has been credited with putting a lot of effort into reducing some forms of pollution, but its negative impacts on the environment is still very important. Moreover, they have been criticized for not forging a current long-term environmental policy. In fact, there's still resistance to environmental measures. The Liberal Democratic Party, which ruled until 2009, and had a strong relationship, obviously, with businesses who would prefer uh, to put money into developing their industry and developing the economy instead of having a more conscientious and environmental concern. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars and academics bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Japan on the Record is hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, BC. Thank you for listening.